As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, everybody. Hope you're joining us. Hope you're not too disappointed about another Canucks overtime loss. Excuse me, Farhan's going to join us shortly. He's just about home. We tested the audio quality as he was driving back, but it just wasn't quite up to my standard. You guys all know how much I like good sound quality. Never do the dishes during a podcast. So I figured I'd give him a second. Just going to share this on Twitter and invite people to come fetch it about the Canucks with us. Um, on this live room, and then Farhan's going to join us in seconds. Uh, yep, just uh, typing that out. All right, great radio. Off to a killer start. Speaking of killer starts, the Vancouver Canucks. My goodness. That's five straight losses to begin the season. Tough, tough, tough go. The good news is, they were in the game tonight. I mean, the Wild played pretty poorly, considering that team's top gear. Uh, they've obviously got off to a bad start themselves. At least they got off the schneid with a win this evening against Vancouver. So, as usual, Farhan, once he joins us, we're going to do this the old way, right? We'll, we'll talk. We'll debate. We'll try to avoid speaking about the Mariners and the Blue Jays. Uh, and then we will... Can, can, um, you, can you hear me, buddy? I'm on. I can. How you doing? Oh, perfect. I'm good. Yeah. I thought we were talking about the uh, San Francisco 49ers trade. That's happening oh, yeah. first, right? Well, sure. I mean... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what what the, the San Francisco 49ers adding an injury-plagued running back. What can go wrong? <laughs> well, I know. And, you know they, but they've got so many hybrid-type pieces like that. Like, look, when Christian McCaffrey is healthy, he's incredible. Now, he might only be healthy for five or six games. I'll, I'll absolutely give you that. Not a Niners guy or a GG guy, but my goodness, four picks for... Him, fortunately, none of them was a first rounder, but three in next year's draft. He makes them so good. The, the comments are all like, please, no NFL on the VanCast for <laughs> so, oh, on. Well, so, I had a tweet right away saying, can we please ask him his opinion of this trade? Well, so, I, I just I just want to say when it comes to Kyle Shanahan, I fully expect yeah. CMC to be part of a committee with Elijah Mitchell by week nine, in which he's the third down back only. All right. Moving well, on. You could, you could be right. And the Mariners are better than the Jays. And now let's move on. Yeah, I mean, we can't, I can't argue that. They won in a playoff series. Congrats to them. 
there's no debate. We literally got that settled. So uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, one thing I think, so I'm going to start out with the positive. Okay. With the exception of one game, one game against the Washington Capitals, the Vancouver Canucks were in every contest that they lost on this road trip, right? The Oilers game was a one goal game, not a clear defeat. It's, they lose 5-3, but there's an empty netter involved. Don't count those in, in assessing, you know, one goal records. Flyers, one goal game. Capitals, they lose by two. Blue Jackets, overtime loss. Wild, overtime loss. So, Canucks are 0-2-2 now in one goal games and 3-2 and oh, and two on the season. Now, this team won a lot of one goal games. And, and one goal one goal results don't tend to repeat in hockey. We know how hard it is to win in this league. We know the margins are incredibly fine. They were incredibly fine tonight. But when you really think about it, like when you really think about how the Canucks performed tonight in particular, you know, there are some disturbing trends that continued. And yet I don't know that I crushed them for their performance overall, right? Like, they they came out and really put themselves in a good spot in the second period. I thought they got sunned again a little bit in the third period once the Wild ramped it up. But, um, you know, on the whole, I thought this was a pretty equal game. Like, I thought this was a pretty even game. Pedersen hits a crossbar late on the power play, and it goes to overtime, and Kaprizov takes over and does Kaprizov stuff. I know it's frustrating because it's like every game on this road trip, we've seen... Other team stars be the difference, with the exception of the game in Philadelphia, because the Philadelphia Flyers don't have any. But we saw McDavid score a hat trick. We saw Ovi had a four point night, right? We saw um, Johnny Gaudreau knife through the Canucks defense like it was butter that had been melted in the microwave for eight seconds, uh, and he was a, a steak knife. And we saw the Wild Kaprizov just completely take over. I mean, let's be real, that was Sedine quality persistence from Kaprizov on the winner and a lovely little bit of awareness from Matt Zuccarello to support him and get that low tip that tied the game in overtime. I, you know, I, you know me well enough to know that if I wanted to blast the Canucks, like if I wanted to come out here and foam at the mouth and talk about how hopeless this team is, uh, and I thought that was fair to do, I would do it. Like, that's not an opportunity that I pass up lightly. But as I'm thinking about this trip on the whole, there are issues that are intractable for this team. There are meaningful concerns that I have that we'll get into. And yet I find it difficult to come away with a take that's anything beyond Vancouver lost four narrow games while performing mostly fine uh, over the course of this road trip. And they've put themselves in a hole. Uh, I think they've got a really tough, I don't know if you've seen the Tage Thompson highlights yet from Calgary, but they're playing a unicorn at Rogers Arena on Saturday night. It's not going to be easy. They could well be 0-4-2, but I don't know that I have grounds to really kick this team right now. Like, I thought they accounted for themselves pretty well tonight and lost in overtime against a team that I still suspect is going to get on track and be one of the league's best this year. I, I don't know. I don't know what else to really say about it. Well, look, there's a lot to say. First of all, you are right. Like it would be so easy to look at the totality as opposed to look at each game individually. But ultimately, 
you know, you are what your record says you are, right? To quote some wise coaches along the way. And this team's best players have been their best, right? Starting with their goalie. And that was part of today. And and that's been part of this trip. And Quinn Hughes has not been the same player. Uh, you know, it, it almost feels like last year's first third of the season with Elias Pettersson has now transferred itself over to Quinn Hughes, right? Just in terms of a guy that's just not impacting the game the way we're used to seeing him impact the game, right? Um, Pettersson's been really good. There's no question. You look at a guy like JT Miller, he's scoring, but his defensive problems have, have just been, you know, we've talked about it over and over. Today was marginally better, not necessarily From who? From better. Miller? Yeah. I, I, I thought, I mean, I think one of the Canucks' big problems right now is that reliably, game in, game out, whatever line you put Pedersen on is going, and that's yep. it. And that's it. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. So, like, Miller yeah. hasn't, has, he's, Miller has scored some goals. He's done some things on the power play, but generally their power play is underperformed. Their penalty kill is what we know it to be. And like Besser doesn't play the last four minutes of tonight's game. Why? Because he wasn't playing well. So you don't roll him out there in overtime after sitting on the bench for the back end of the third period. You know, yeah. Miller has been has been meh all the way through. Pod Colson, 11 and a half minutes. He might be one of your top three players. Mikheyev, I thought, did some good things. But like generally, they need more from Quinn Hughes Thatcher Demko, JT Miller, Brock Besser, period, period. So while it didn't look like a train wreck in the third period, the way it has at other times, right? There were still, you know, there were. Well, I still thought it was bad. I still thought it it was was bad in the third. But I'm I'm grading on a curve because of comparing it to the first four games, right? So it wasn't good, but it was better than it was the first four games. But again, you know, you're, you're right. They could have won any of these games for 60 minutes. They were the better team tonight, right? Like, they weren't at the most. I wouldn't go that far. Game. I wouldn't I, go that like, far. The first eight minutes, they weren't. Okay. So look, the, for me, I, the way I watched it, the first half of the first period, they were really bad to start. They settled in. And after that, I thought they did some really good things in this game. And certainly in the third period, they Minnesota was better, but they didn't have their lunch handed to them like we've seen at other times in this trip mm-hmm. from a no, process had, standpoint. They had nothing aside from that power play chance that Patterson had. And well, and the and the JT Miller chance and the Bull Horvat rebound, but all, all on one power play. Aside from PP one, it felt like there was no chance that they were going to score. Like there just weren't chances. And if you watch the game closely, you know one thing that the Minnesota Wild were able to do pretty consistently in the third period, and I think allowed them to take over the game. And people are going to be stunned to hear me say this: is you go D to D. You regroup a little bit at your own blue line, and then you attack as a five-man unit. And the Canucks are so limited in terms of what type of mobility that they can have from their back end that instead it's all just chipping. There's no connectivity out front, and that allowed the Wild to take over this game in the third period, in my view anyway. Uh, even if the power plays were the difference, at five-on-five, five, it just it always feels like the Canucks are skating uphill, simply trying to connect play out of their own end. I think that's a big part of the story here. Like their forwards are looking badly, but you really have to account for just how difficult their job is, how much is being asked of them, how essential it is for this team to have any success that they effectively manufacture their own offense on the forecheck and rely on broken breakouts to create any pressure. You just never see a Canucks forward get like a a clean pass after a defender has skated past a guy and and they've got, you know, a head of steam going downhill to begin to attack. So while I agree with, you know, Pedersen right now is able to do it. 
Horvat and Miller have not been able to do it consistently. Horvat has been more reliable and more consistent in the first five games. But I'm really reluctant to pin as much on, like, uh, let me give you an example. JT Miller getting roundly criticized for losing a battle that occurs 70 seconds into a shift with Kaprizov in overtime. Like, what else is he going to do? I, I He accounted for himself well there. Kaprizov's not a, a, a wilting violet, easy to push off the puck. Miller knew that I get the puck out here, I win the battle, and I get a change, or I'm cooked, toast, done. And he went for it. And it was the right play. And he loses a 50-50. But he counted for himself, well, it was, a, it was a tough battle. Like, I don't know what else you want him to do. And I just think that's such crucial context in judging some of the Canucks forwards that we're seeing is that the environment that they're being asked to maintain um, doesn't put any of them in a position to succeed. The fact that Pedersen is doing what he's doing is a testament to just how high a level he is at game in, game out. And, you know, the fact that the other Canucks players aren't reliably there, aren't reliably at that level, I, I you know, yeah, they need to be. They're paid to be, certainly uh, in the wake of Miller's extension. But, I, I mean, a lot's being asked of him here, too. And I, I, it's not exactly an easy job here right now for any of Vancouver's star forwards. No, you're right. And look, at the end of the day, like even in Miller's case, of, of the five games, I thought today was his best, right? And again, we're kind of grading on a curve here. But when I look at it, like they're collectively, like we saw so many good performances. Uh, not, I shouldn't say that. Let me take that back. Uh, from, you know, from their forwards, obviously JT Miller was consistent from start to finish last year, right? Uh, Bo Horvat certainly came on strong in the second half of the season. And we all know about how Pedersen's season went. But right now, like I'm seeing in terms of the players that need to effectively play up front, I'm seeing Pedersen playing at a completely different level from the rest of his teammates. I'm seeing Bo Horvat, you know, that second guy where he's noticeable for the right reasons in most games. And after that, like, it, it's getting scarce. It's getting really thin. And you talk about the connectivity. You're a thousand percent right. Watching this D play, you know, and we're, we're going to have to at some point kind of break this up into pieces on where we want to focus and, and kind of go piece by piece. But as I listen to everybody complain about, and I'm certainly at the top of the play Jack Rathbone list, not that he's the solution, but could he be an upgrade or does he deserve to play? Those are different questions. You know, and I'm thinking, look at how bad this D is. And we're fighting about the possibility of whether or not this young guy who has a certain level of talent and a certain skill set this team needs, whether or not he should play. And think of who we're comparing him against. And think of where this club's problems are in terms of its back end, completely unable to play with the puck, get the forwards involved. And, you know, you talk about that connectivity piece, like he can't be any worse than what they're rolling out there right now. And, and, it, and that starts with the top, like, what is going on with Quinn Hughes? Let's start there. What is going on? Because for the amount that he's played, and this tonight he was the second most uh, timed defenseman, right? He played a little bit less than Ekman Larson. His ice time's a little bit down. Is he dealing with an illness still? Is he dealing with an injury? Like, this is not the same player. And given the minutes he plays, if he can't be that player, this team is effed on every level. Because for his minutes, he needs to at least be able to control play to the level that he did a year ago. And he, to quote Tony Gallagher, is a hologram right now at five on five and on the power play. It has to start there. Given yeah. the amount of ice time he's supposed to get and between him and Thatcher Demko, it, it, the better has to start there. And then we can work our way up and start discussing the forwards. 
And so let's start with Hughes. Well, sorry, What's sorry, going sorry, on sorry. there right now? I want to come back. I want to come back to talk about. Well, okay. Let, I'll, I'll indulge you. Let's do Hughes. Guy has the flu. Misses a preseason game and three practices. Dude, the flu. Returned. We're not talking about COVID. There's got to be more to it than the flu. I can't accept the flu returns, as him to this level. Returns. Okay. And breaks his nose in the very first game. And is now playing 28 minutes a night. Top pair minutes, all situations. And his partner is Luke Shen. And he hasn't been good enough defensively. Some of his defensive lapses have looked a little bit too 2021 for me, for sure. But man, is he being asked to do a lot. And man, is he being asked to do a lot while working with very little. That's it. Like, I don't know what... We, well, there's nothing more we have to unpack there. But when we talk about, like, Luke Shen is supposed to be the cure-all for him, right? Like, he was Chris Tanev 2.0. That, you know, no, come on. Anyone, anyone who thinks Look, he's Tanev 2.0 is out to lunch, though. We know Shen is not as good as Chris Tanev. But Quinn Hughes himself has talked about how much playing with Shen helped stabilize his game a year ago. You like you can't simply say, "Well, he's playing with Luke Shen." You can't have any expectations. No. Then well, that's good. I'm not. I'm not saying you're. I'm not saying you don't have any expectations. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, what? What? Else, what? Like, what more? Or what are you? What are your expectations of this guy playing with a third pair caliber guy uh, in top pair minutes? My expectations um, are he plays I, the way he did a I don't year know. ago because that was his circumstance a year ago. His circumstance a year yeah. ago was to play with Luke Shen. And to be far more effective than he was the previous year. And look, the Canucks must have him play at the level he played at last year with the same defensive partner. There is no choice given how bad this D is. We are going to get into, I, I just am leery of getting into like the classic, like, does Hughes need to be better for this team to make the playoffs? Yes. But I don't want to get into the classic blame the stars thing. When, I mean, you saw that Cam Sharon stat, I'm sure, where with, like Hughes has a 57% controlled uh, entry rate and the rest, all of the other Canucks defenders going into tonight's game were at 14%. Without Hughes on the ice, the way this team plays is like teams played in the 1970s. And with Hughes on the ice, they're a modern NHL team. He doesn't have the help, man. Like, again, I need to be circumspect in how much and how um, intense the criticism I direct to him is, because to a man, just about everyone is being put in terrible spots, terrible spots, which is truly the mark of a, of a bad organization, of a bad team, right? Like, why, why does Jonas Donskoy crush it in Colorado and not in Seattle, right? Like, sometimes players go to good teams and then... You know, every guy who goes to a great team, it's like, wow, what a great player. And it's like, no, it's a great team. <laughs> you know, uh, to some extent, Vancouver stars are struggling or those that are struggling. Um, I do think they're being put in, in really tough spots. Too much is being asked of them or they're not playing their natural position or they're playing with a guy who can't keep up or doesn't help them enough. And, you know, I just think Hughes falls in that category. Miller, for me, falls in that category. Bo Horvat, for me, falls in that category. You know, you, you put those guys in different environments, I guarantee you they'd crush. Guarantee you. Now, anyway, here's one thing that, let, let me, let me, I know a lot of fans are expecting us to be a little more negative here. I, 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 people are like confused I'm trying. by my tone. 
<laughs> yeah, I know you are. <laughs> um, let me let me bring up one thing that I really am worried about. Third periods, okay, and not the third period splits or whatever, but like, is this team in shape? I think it's a relevant question, not just because of all the blown leads, but because of the way they played um, late in games. Like tonight again, it, it, if they were going to score at five on five, it was going to take a fluke. Like it was going to take a fluke. The Wild just completely shut them down. Uh, happened also against Washington, happened against Edmonton. In those three games in particular, they just had nothing going. It, it was going to take a lucky bounce for the team to score five on five. And that wasn't the case once they found their footing in the first. It certainly wasn't the case when they were all over the ice in the second. Every game, it feels like we see the Canucks throw their best shot early, and then they're punch drunk late. Like, I, you know, I don't know what's going on there, but it almost looks to me, and I wonder, like, are they just running up against fitter athletes every game? Because this is becoming a disturbing trend to me. Well, we certainly saw a different emphasis on uh, conditioning coming into Travis Green's training camp, right? Everybody knew they were going to have, you know, the, the conditioning drill and, and all of that in front of them. Uh, and, you know, they did have some some bag skates and a few things like that as far as uh, Boudreaux's camp is concerned. But I, I certainly was a different point of emphasis under Green. And this is not to say one coach is better than the other or anything like that. So let's not go there. But I, it's a fair concern. It's a fair concern. And I mean, and I don't know. Uh, you know, the broken nose, as far as Hughes is concerned, whether that's affecting his his breathing and his oxygen capacity, his, his ability to have, uh, you know, just any kind of energy out there. But like I said, I mean, I, I can't take uh, I am not giving him a pass yet. Right. And I say that because of what we talked about. Same partner he had a year ago, the praise he had for said partner a year ago. It, his game, in my opinion, should be at a different level. But collectively, yeah, they're they're all melting down in the third period, there's very little for them to offer. Like, I don't think they faced wave after wave and shot after shot, but you're right. They didn't generate anything uh, in the third period tonight at five on five. But what do you do at this stage? Because, you know, you talk about all of them being in a difficult position and a difficult environment. Like for me, I look at their top nine and I, I like what I see in terms of what's there on paper. Certainly they haven't lived up to that through five games, but on paper, they are better as a top nine forward group than they were a year ago. It doesn't do much for them if they can't get the puck with any level of speed or transition in their breakout. Um, and now you're talking about fitness as, as, a, as a real viable concern because we see that in the third period. So what do you do at this stage of the year on that particular topic? Oh, I, I mean, <laughs> you can't go mini nothing. training camp now. No, no, it's uh, that dice has has rolled. but you'd expect as the grind of the season wears on that the team would perform better. Um, I want to do one thing before we open the stage up. I want to do a quick sustainability check. Okay. I want to just talk through what we've seen in terms of the Canucks performance, what to expect going forward. So five games isn't a big sample, right? We're only talking about like, you know, 200 ish five on five minutes. Um, you know, Wait a minute. Than- you just you just talked about their their odds of making it and how they got affected. That was after game four, I believe. Well, sorry. So let me I'll have that conversation now quickly. Here's the thing about the NHL that people don't like to admit. Right. The the, the playoffs are decided quickly. Right. Like it doesn't take a long time for you to win a bunch of games early where you just have to go and play 500 hockey the rest of the way. And you're a 95 point team. Right. Like you start something like eight one and two 
it takes a lot to miss the playoffs. <laughs> you just have to be like an, uh, a point a game team. 500 hockey will get you there. Um, the opposite is also true, particularly when you really don't pick up points, right? One, three, and one doesn't hurt you that much. I mean, even though it's only an extra point over oh, three and two. One, three, like every point you bank matters so much early. It's so high leverage. One, three, and two, do, one, three, and one does hurt you. Let me be clear. But like two and three doesn't hurt you. Uh, you know, two, two, and one, you know, picking up two points out of a, uh, out of a possible 10 really does put you behind the eight ball. So just, just as a little bit of context here, right? The playoff bar historically over the course of full seasons. So I'm throwing out the pandemic seasons in 2020 and 2021. The playoff bar in the West in those, um, you know, what, I guess it's seven seasons since 2014, since they adopted this three teams from each division plus two wild cards format, um, is historically 93 points, 93.2 points. So let's say 93 points will be a little bit generous. Is the average playoff bar since since 2014. To get to 93 points, having having picked up only two of their first 10 available points, the Canucks have to play at 104-point pace the rest of the way, right? So it's like, yeah, it's only five games, but they now have to go. Bruce, there it is, pace over the balance of the season just to get to 93, just to hit their over, uh, the 92.5 point over that Vegas set for them before the season. So, you know, it's doable, obviously, but yeah, it gets early quick in this league, particularly with the way the standings don't exactly provide for opportunities for teams to catch up. Anyway, back to the sustainability check. We're still talking small samples. Five on five. One thing to note is that the Canucks just aren't generating all that much, right? Like they're actually lucky offensively. And in fact, lucky overall, right? The Canucks PDO through five games is over a hundred. So there's nothing like really ugly, bounces going against them five on five there's there's nothing we'd look at and say oh that's going to regress in their favor in fact if anything i would expect them to score somewhat less than they have at five on five overall uh to this point though they actually have a positive goal differential in five on five situations through five games uh 12 goals for one goal against a little bit soft on the offensive side though so uh, you know i think this team's been a little bit fortunate in terms of their finishing luck i expect that to come back to earth um, I also expect their goaltending to get better than it's been. Demko has not been up to the standard that we've expected of him. Uh, power play, power play starting to cook. Absolutely starting to cook. They will be good five on four, but they can't wait too much longer for that to matter, right? They, it needs to start actually puncturing the opposition for goals. To this point, to this point, especially the last two games have really brought most of their underlying numbers, their shot rate, their chances rate, their expected goals rate. Uh, back to being either high end or close to it. Um, you know, the, their expected goals are still a little bit below average, but, um, you know, for the most part, the power play looks like it's cooking again. You can see it with your eyes. The numbers reflect that too. They're, they're uh, coming back up in a major way. They're converting on six and a half percent of their five on four shots right now. That's going to, that's going to change. The Canucks power play is a uh, sleeping giant again. It's just when it wakes up. And once it wakes up, this team's going to win games like tonight where they build the, their lead out uh, and seal the deal uh, with that power play opportunity in the third period. Penalty kill. Um, honestly, it doesn't look that bad from an underlying profile perspective, but they are giving up a lot of chances. Thatcher Demko and Spencer Martin combined on the penalty kill at the moment, 65% of shots saved. <laughs> like 
that's so unlucky. So special teams, I think they've mostly been unlucky. Like I would say, you know, I don't think the penalty kill has been good, but I mostly think they've been unlucky on special teams and that's going to turn in their favor to some extent over the balance. Five on five, they've actually been a little bit fortunate and this kind of is who they are. And yeah, I mean, you never want to be relying on on that. But again, I, I sort of look at it and through five games, they've built, they've dug themselves a hole. It's a bigger hole than you'd like it to be this early in the season. And yet, you know, most of the, most of their big issues, think, are, most of their big issues are things I expect to turn. Like I expect Demko to be good. I expect JT Miller to be playable. I expect Quinn Hughes to be really good. And, you know, the fact that those guys haven't been at their best, on the one hand, they're, you know, that's that's why they've started the season slow. But on the other, you know, they're going to turn it around. You know, those guys are going to be good. But by the end of the season, we're going to be like, hey, all those guys are good players and they played well. Um, so that's for me positive. Same thing on special teams. Like I expect the power power play is going to start converting uh, because most of it looks fine, except for the shooting rate. Um, likewise, on the PK, like Demko's not going to stop 65 percent of shots shorthanded all season that's going to come around um you know i i don't think this team's going to be great is the problem and i think 104 points is probably too big an ask which is why this whole matters so much but man i i I just don't feel like they're full value for being the last winless team in the league well look i i I find it hard to disagree with you on a couple of topics i do think thatcher demko is going to turn things around i do think quinn hughes is going to turn things around and i think that's um, certainly the power play is going to get to where it needs to be. Um, but like, you know, we waited a long time for this with Pedersen last year. And I know there was an injury that was part of it, but even he admitted that it was not just the injury, that his, his, his focus and his confidence. And there were a number of things that were in the wrong place. He, he hasn't given him, he didn't give himself a pass. God bless him. Right. Like everybody else seemed to want to do. Um, but here's the thing. I talked to this, I talked to Harm about this on the VanCast yesterday about goaltending that goaltending can be fickle, that even the best goaltenders in the league can have these one year here and there that just kind of come out of nowhere and and it lasts, like it lasts for a season and then they pick it up the next season again. But we've seen this with goaltenders that it, it can happen to them. Again, it's only a five-game sample size on Thatcher Demko. He hasn't been awful. He just hasn't been the goaltender they need him to be. Um, you know, like he himself wasn't happy on the Sam Steele goal. Uh, you know, the third goal today, yes, it was a five on four that really was a five on three because of a broken stick, but room on the short side squeezes through seven hole when he's on his game, those goals don't happen. Right. Um, so I hope it doesn't turn into one of those years that even elite goaltenders have from time to time, because this team simply can't afford that on any. And let's remember, let's remember in any generation, there are two or three goalies that matter from the perspective of always manage an elite save percentage year after year, no matter what. <laughs> and in this generation, I think we feel pretty good about Shesterkin and Vasilevsky. And maybe the third guy's up for grabs with Demko being a contender, Sorokin being a contender, UC Saros being a contender, Connor Hellebuck, Markstrom is definitely there. You know, that's sort of that like subgroup, right? That, you know, the, on uh, I mean, yeah, on deck. Like the last generation, it was Luongo and Lundqvist and Rask. Right. But but for a while, Rask was debatable with guys like, you know, Jonathan Quick and Crawford and and a few other guys. And ultimately, it's settled to be those three. Uh, I think we know who two of them are. Demko has a shot to be the third guy, but he could be the other type 
right? The really good starting goaltender who's super valuable, who's just not at that elite level year after year with the, you know, inhuman consistency that it takes to be a Hall of Fame level goalie. Because make no mistake, Rask, Lundqvist, Luongo, we're talking Hall of Fame level goalies. All right. I want to open it to the stage just because we've already got seven people with their hands up. I know Canucks fans are furious and I want to give them a chance to vent. I want to give them a chance to guide our conversation and I want to give them a chance to, to poke and prod at us. And, and, you know, I'm sure get a rise out of us at, at some point. Um, so I'm going to welcome to the stage one, a three who, uh, you know, has a username like a star Wars droid, but I'm sure is a real person. IA3, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, what's going on? Uh, yeah. Um, I, was um, I think, though, it just validates how, not necessarily poor, but how much of a mess management has to deal with. As you can tell, that they don't want to just go into a straight rebuild. However, this team still needs a retool. Like, I look at signing Mikheyev, I look at getting the likes of Dermot, and how that almost queued like $6 million, then shipping out Dickinson for a second. Yeah, he got the 2.6 back, but you still got rid of a second. Could you flip that for like a John Marino instead? I think right. Or they don't want to adjust. Because essentially, and I think we all know this, the core forward are not a Stanley Cup contender. So why can this one? Fair enough. Hey, IA3, thank you so much for the question. It's a really good one. The retool question looms large, right? Because for me anyway, this team made win now moves yet again, right? Dermot is a really good example to throw in there too, because it feels kind of like the early Benning bridge the gap bets, none of which paid off. The Emerson Edom, Andre Padan, Canaries in a coal mine kind of bets. Uh, the Mikheyev investment, the Miller investment, for me, you make those deals plus the Dickinson trade and you get to a point where this team is no longer, from a management perspective, you know, uh, being managed by Alvin and Rutherford who were dealt a bad hand and are conservatively trying to manage through it. You know, they rubber stamped this team. Uh, they've actually made this team harder to disassemble should they decide to. And it doesn't really make sense that they made those commitments when they did, especially the Miller one, um, you know, a month out from the start of the season, right? Like the, it would be one thing to be 0-3 and 2 with a pair of, yeah, 1-3 and 2 or 0-3 and 2, excuse me, with a pair of expiring centermen who have huge value, right? You'd be like, okay, well, they either get this back on track, and if they don't, then this can set them up for the future. And instead, it's like you're going to be navigating around a 30-year-old Miller and a 32-year-old Oliver Ekman Larson, neither of whom have played at a star level uh, this season, and in OEL's case, last season, too. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really tough. They're, they're, but, you know, I saw uh, Lee had a good comment in our uh, comment section earlier about sort of the, the bigger picture. And this was in reaction to the positivity that I had going on to not, not the positivity, but just sort of the uh, look that I was taking at the team. And he said, if you look at the big picture, basically, sorry, I'm trying to find the exact comment because I thought it was a, a really instructive one. And I want to, and I wanna, 
Drancer, zoom out, he said. Big picture, a team that can play like this is barely a playoff team at best and far from a contender. What's the point of this? Big picture, this is a disaster and has been for years. And of course, he's right. Like, that is dead on for sure. Uh, The problem is, the problem is, you are a bad team when you hit a rocky patch, right? Your your penalty kills is getting ventilated. Your power play is not working. The bounces are going against you in those areas. Your goaltender is not at a at his absolute tip top level to start the season. A good team gets into that spot and comes out of it two two and one, right? Like, and they're not behind the eight ball and they're totally fine and they can ease their way into it. A bad team gets two points of ten, right? And that's sort of the test that this team has failed already. Is Can you, when things go badly, still rely on, like, a strong foundational backbone? And this team doesn't have that strong foundational backbone at 5-on-5, largely because they can't move the puck from the back end at all, especially when Hughes is off the ice. So, you look at this, and there's no question in my mind, anyway, that that is right. And in the big picture, this organization has had a decade of, of abject failure and that the work of the front office through the first four months have sort of added to the problem in, in a meaningful way. And that's frustrating when this team has now come out of the gate so slowly, winless in five. Um, and I, I think fans are right to be frustrated about that big picture. Uh, I, you know, I'm frustrated covering it. Um, you yeah, know, there, there doesn't appear to be a, there doesn't appear to be a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like we can, no. you know, we've talked about JT Miller, you know, a lot in this, these first couple of weeks. And, you know, as I look at that contract, like this is going to be an albatross. And I say that because they're paying him to be a top six center and he is a top six winger, right? Like the defensive challenges that he has are only magnified with him playing down the middle and they're stuck. They're flat out stuck. And, you know, and you can't shake that. You can't shake that. And, you know, the Mikheyev deal, you know, I, I didn't hate it. But again, we talked about it at the time that that's the kind of deal you make if you are that close to being a contender. So, you know, while he, he he's just not before, moving, he's just not moving the needle. Like, I know he's, no, he's still not, easing we his talked way before, back. We talked but. before about how do they unravel this just awful twine, this, you know, this knot that Jim Benning created for them. And all they've done was created a few more knots around it. They haven't remotely begun to unwind it. Okay, I, you gave up a second-round pick and saved a bit of money on the Jason Dickinson deal. But the big deals that need to be moved or the, the big dollars that need to be saved, they just added, man. They just added. So if you're a Canuck fan and you're frustrated because you see this and you don't know what the light at the end of the tunnel is, I'm with you. I don't either. All right, let's, uh, let's go to Sean W., always a reliable question asker. <coughs> Sean, you hear me? Uh, yep, yep, loud and clear. What's going on, bud? Oh man, um, <laughs> what a shit show! <laughs> um, I'll start with. Uh, I just think it's a little bit ironic that I mean, to my taste, this is like the best the media landscape has been in my lifetime of cover- watching the Canucks with like Canucks Army OGs on six fifty. Uh, and and Harmon and stuff and this is probably the most tragic the team has been in my lifetime from a coverage standpoint anyways um so 
yeah, Forhan, you're great, but you're out to lunch with the Quinn Hughes <laughs> stuff. Like on like we let's avoid getting into Castle with the Maple Leafs territory. Like Drance, like there's always it's just like a cyclical thing. Like you see good players on bad teams get labeled as the problems within the dressing room, the problems with it. It's like good teams can sustain slumps from their, some of their good players, right? Mm. You create an environment that can sustain slumps. It's just, it's ridiculous. I don't even really blame Miller. Like he's never been a good top six center in his career. He's been a good top six winger. Who's just feasted on the power play. This was an iceberg in the middle of like a clear sky ocean that this organization couldn't avoid going like three miles per hour. Like it was so obviously going to be the outcome that anyways, it's just, it's just depressing to be honest. I think I made a comment (laughs) after the trade deadline about how, if you know, I was going to like be patient. And if after, if we got to the, the, preseason and he hadn't been traded or he'd been signed then i'd be ready to grab a pitchfork i'm honestly like closer to apathy than than pitchfork so anyways keep up the good work thanks thanks Thanks. sean sean Sean, great call and listen let's let's be clear right last year (laughs) when i was critical of elias petterson at no point did i remotely suggest oh they should trade him or give up on him or he's tragic no and i'm not saying that about quinn hughes i am not saying that about quinn hughes but i am saying And, and he's right. I, like if he th- if that's the takeaway that I think he's the problem, um, I just think they need him to be a part of the solution. And you are not wrong. Like there is a lot of pressure on this guy. And Sean was right that good teams, of which this isn't one, well constructed rosters allow for key players to have limited slumps. Last year, the Canucks roster did not allow for Pedersen to have a slump. This this current incarnation of the Canucks a year later doesn't have it in them to not have. Quinn Hughes and Thatcher Demko not being on top of their games for a five-game stretch, right? Like, uh, you know, when did Quinn Hughes go through a five-game stretch last year where he played like this? And and again, he hasn't been awful. He just hasn't been to the level they need him to play at. And and we're not talking about a level he's never reached. We're talking about a level he has shown. They need him to be at that level because they can't function without it. And same thing with Thatcher Demko. So again, but, they're not. The but problem, for example, but they need him to get back to a level. But for example, um, Austin Matthews has a goal and a, an assist in four games, right? But and the Leafs are fine. And the Leafs are fine. Three, two, and oh, right? Because there's an infrastructure there that permits for that, right? That permits him to not necessarily be a world beater uh, right off the hop and for them to still manage or find ways to win games. Like Kale McCarr hasn't scored yet this season, right? Um, you're never going to hear about it. No one cares because the abs are the abs. They're two, one and one. They're not at their best, but they're still winning games, right? It's, it's that they're insulated. They're, they're properly insulated. They're built well. Um, you know, (laughs) the Canucks aren't, and it's a huge issue. It creates this sort of moment or, or this structure where it's like Demko's not the best goalie in the, on the planet for four games. What's wrong with Demko, right? Hughes isn't, you know, also, in addition to being second in the NHL in games, coming off an illness and having broken his nose in the first game, um, you know, doing 12 dynamic things a period the way we're used to, what's wrong with him, right? Bad teams ask too much of good players. And 
that's what the Canucks are, unfortunately. Like the thing I the thing I like the best about what Sean said is describing this team as tragic. Um, even though I see <laughs> them being in every game and still sort of I like I haven't seen enough from this five game stretch to dissuade me from my view that the Canucks are like you know a ninety two to ninety five point true talent team. There's too much talent up front. Like they're not going to realistically be able to get into the Connor Bedard sweepstakes with this group of forwards. Like no chance. Demko and Net, no chance they're going to be in in Arizona territory at the end of the year. No chance. But have they dug themselves enough of a hole that like high 80s is probably where they're going to settle? Yeah, that that's sort of the stakes uh, of what's happened so far. I'm going to invite John T up to the up to the stage. John, can you hear me? Hey, guys, how's it going? Going well. How are you? Yeah, okay. Um, look, uh, I know it's early in the season and combinations are still finding chemistry, but I just wanted to ask for your thoughts on the pairing of uh, Murph and Harmon thus far. How translatable do you think the podcast game is to the big leagues on TV? <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, I mean, I liked uh, Harmon reminding Murph of what the next subject was today. I thought that showed uh, some dexterity on Harmon's feet. I think Harmon's great on TV. He looks great. Uh, his analysis is excellent. It's only going to get better as he gets more reps. Um, you say so, his analysis is excellent because it's the same as yours. Well, we're a hive mind. <laughs> it is what it is. I, I, just uh, think, I think you're in behind Harmon, just kind of propping it in. and you're, like, you're, you, He's got you on his earpiece, and he's just no. regurgitating. What, yes, that's happening. I don't have time for that. Uh, but Harmon, uh, Harmon's, uh, <laughs> Harmon's awesome. Harmon's analysis is great. And, and look, me and Harmon just happen to be a hive mind. There's nothing we've done to, or work at to be that way. It's just that we always have the same take. Um, we laugh about it sometimes because I'll be like, ah, you, you see this? And he sees, he just, we just happen to see the game the same way. Um, not quite, not like entirely, but we happen to see and like the same players and value the same stuff. And, um, it's fun. It's nice to have that. I think he's really good on TV. I think he's done a great job. I think he's only going to get sharper and better as he goes too. How's he been on the podcast, Farhan? Clearly an upgrade over my last partner. How much do you miss me? Uh, you know what? I, I, I miss you, but, uh, you know, for different reasons, right? Like he's, Harm's a little more measured, so we don't get into it. Like we might disagree, but it just doesn't get as as personal and we just don't talk over each other as much. So I don't know if that makes for better or worse radio because again, he shares your takes, which I don't often. So we, we do disagree. It's just, it's just got a different tone to it. It's a little more, you know, there's a little more love and, 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 you know, respect. He respects my age. <laughs> well, I'll have to disabuse him of that. <laughs> Clean that up. All right. Let's invite Cole P up to the Cole stage. P up to the stage. Hello. Hey, Cole, we've got you. Hey, great. Hey, uh, just a question. So I, I caught your take the other day um, on talking roster construction and how you said it was, it was kind of like the Jays where we had just too many of the same type of player. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we're mm -hmm. seeing this now where we're, we're sitting Garland or we're sitting, Pod, or sorry, um, Hoaglander, like people who are playing hard. So, Clearly, it's the team's just unbalanced. So, do you, do you think this is this is what Jim's get, Jim Rutherford's got to do is try and balance the team by by offloading one of these 
these players who's clearly good and you don't want to lose, but we just have too many of them? That's my question. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Cole. Um, so the point that I made was I like JT Miller, Elias Pettersson, and Bo Horvat a lot as players, but they're all lefties. None of them is a great PK center, right? None of them is a great matchup center. So when you have all three of them, in some ways, their utility is diminished by the presence of the other players, right? So it's like, you know, uh, do the Canucks have players who, even though they're good, their combination of skills don't combined lend, lend themselves naturally to the act of winning games at the NHL level? That's sort of the big question I have about this team's construction. And and I take it further. I think you're right that Hoaglander and Connor Garland are like pieces. Uh, it was, you know, something we talked about a little bit last summer, Farhan, uh, when I was um, critical of the OEL deal. The original OEL deal was, you know, they, they've kind of brought in a winger who I don't think any coach is ever going to play on the same line as Niels Hoagland. Right. Like that makes it hard to fit these pieces together. I think I regularly use the analogy of an LSAT logic games puzzle. Um, and and I think, too, you've got a bunch of forwards whose skills aren't checking and you've got a bunch of defenders whose skill isn't to move the puck. And as a result, you kind of have a mishmash. Right. You have a, a, a forward group that's kind of soft in terms of winning tough matchups and a defensive group that can't control the game or feed their offensive calibration. And yeah, I mean, I think the, the result is a muddle and that's not a muddle that Rutherford and Alvin have built. That's a muddle that they've inherited, but I don't know how you solve it without taking a step back, accumulating futures, uh, landing some impact guys in the draft, uh, particularly along the blue line and sort of moving forward. Like you think about uh, Tanner Pearson, Okay, Tanner Pearson on this team right now. And, you know, the year that they extended Tanner Pearson, like if you if you'd been able to somehow get like the Nick Foligno pick, right, then you're choosing between guys like Lambos and Kuhlemans who are like a year away from making an impact. If you get a second round pick, um, you know, some of the guys who went in, in that area, guys like Olin Zellweger, uh, you know, Zellweger's the best defenseman in the dub. Like he's going to be a fringe top pair guy for the Ducks for the next 10 years, like you'd have that guy plus 3.25 million in cap space. And the Canucks have just like repeatedly made this error. You know, now you have OEL and Tanner Pearson, right? So you have a good middle six winger and a good second pair defenseman for $10 million on your roster on a team that's going to struggle to make the playoffs when you could have Gunther and, you know, a, a, a top end defense prospect. And like what, puts you in a better spot in two years i mean it's not even it's not even hard to figure out right like the nhl is a hard cap league with guaranteed contracts i just don't believe that you can build both for the present and the future at the same time i think hard choices are required in the cap era and one reason that i liked the rutherford hire originally is that if i felt like he had the situational awareness to execute that in pittsburgh when they just went for broke and sold everything all the time and built a team you know that relied on college free agency and other paths to, to sort of fill in from below while, you know, absolutely gutting first round picks constantly to add players in win now deals. So, you know, I thought that was, that was something that I liked about Rutherford. And yet I don't know that they've nailed that 
equation here, right? Like I think holding Miller no, you're, on you're the right. deadline, you know, they, they haven't nailed it here. No, they, they haven't. And there have been a lot of movable pieces here that they've made the decision to not move. Right. And, you know, they may have overplayed their hand in certain situations. I mean, I certainly think what was being discussed around Miller was probably well below what they should have accepted for him. But then you go out and, you know, double down on the issue. Right. So when you look at it all the way across, yes, you're going to look at certain deals as things they can't rid themselves of, like the OEL deal. But there are other deals that have been movable in all of this, right? Like Tanner Pearson had value at last year's deadline. Um, you know, you've got players, even Connor Garland, that's a movable deal. Connor Garland can be spun and, and desirable by the right team that needs that type of player, right? Whereas with the Canucks, you know, you, we've talked about soft skill and things like that many times in this franchise. So, you know, th- there are pieces that could have been moved. There are some that are albatrosses, you know, and we look down a year from now and, and you know, this summer, Myers could have been moved. He's more easy, easily moved next summer, but there've been a lot of pieces that they've made the choice to not move on from. And in the case of JT Miller, double down. Yeah. And I just don't know how you get better with that. Like, I just don't know how you get better without but taking my, a step back first. Is we're, we're, we are very quickly past the point of talking about how this was the previous management team's mess and this current management team is stuck. Like we, well, we need to quickly they, pass that narrative. No, that, that they, that would, I would have absolutely been selling that narrative myself without the Miller extension and the Dickinson deal. The moment that and the, happened. And the McCabe deal. The, the McCabe deal to a lesser extent, but at least they could argue then that he was 27 and brought something they needed in terms of speed. Uh, and that really the deal was, and that really the deal was done, you know, with the, with his age 29 and 30 seasons in their mind's eye, right? Like that I was willing to buy. But once you do the Miller deal, once you do the Dickinson trade, you know, Rutherford and Alvin own this. Like this is their mess now. And they've made it worse. In, from, from a, from the perspective of building a win now team that can't win now, that's on them should these results continue. All right. Dimitri A. I'm going to invite you up to the stage. Dimitri, you got us? I do. Thank you for having me. My question is, I know the Sedins kind of took a step back and went to player development, but these are two guys, Hall of Famers, great experience, leaders. How can they be more involved? I, I have to believe these two can add something to this team and change the dynamic, change clickiness, change locker room, change their pessimism or just losing in the last period. Change something. How can they be more involved? Thanks, Dimitri. Um, so the twins are more involved with the players now, right? Like in their new role, they have been brought to like they've been they've been brought closer to the team, closer to the players, engaging more with the players day to day. So, you know, I think in some ways the move was designed to accomplish some of what you're talking about, some of the make sure that they're around to, to help uh, an aura or a culture of accountability uh, ferment itself within the organization. Like, I think that's the design here in terms of moving them down. Like, I even think their office is going to be down in the bowels of the arena, close to the players. Uh, that's, that's what they're, that's what this move was designed to accomplish. And so uh, they weren't on the road trip. They won't be on the road trip. Uh, one, you know, they will be an Abbotsford a fair bit as well, 
but having them have more touch points, like that's exactly what they're hoping. The organization is hoping Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford are hoping to have accomplished with those moves in the first place. And I think a lot of times that impacts this team down the road, right? I mean, up until now it was, they were working with prospects. Now they are closer to current players, but you wonder if that can instantly fix what they're looking for here. I'm not sure that it can. I don't think players are necessarily wired that way. I think it takes some time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Sean W., by the way, asks, Strance, do you think it's more likely that signing Miller was always the end game for the front office, or did JR and PA feel like they were out of options and didn't want to go into the season with him unsigned? I, I sort of think that everyone backed into this deal. That's sort of my read. I feel like Miller and his camp knew that they had to get paid off of last season, that they'd be taking an enormous level of risk just as it's played out, that he wouldn't be able to repeat the 99-point season, that maybe he wouldn't function as a winger, that he'd get hurt. There was just too much risk to not get a deal done if something you know within the realm of fair was offered. And I think for the Canucks, um, I just don't think the market was ever as robust for Miller as we would have expected. And I think it's because the league kind of has a good sense of the player in person. And so I feel like everyone just kind of backed into the deal. I, I, that's that's my read on it. Farhan, what do you think? Totally agree. Uh, you know, I, I think there was a period of time where they were ready to walk away and they were just the asset management piece of it was just so concerning to them. Right. There were two things. Number one, there was a fear of losing both Besser and Miller and they had to get one of them done. Um, I think they saw a higher ceiling despite the age in Miller. But I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that um, Miller's side was a little bit concerned about what lay, lied ahead. Just the fact that there was the lack of interest there was in terms of um, what teams are willing to offer for him. Quite often that eventually gets reflected in what teams are willing to offer for him from a salary perspective. So, yeah, I, I do think both sides are really concerned about how things are playing out. They didn't want to take a chance at looking over the cliff and see what that looked like. And eventually this is what they settled for. Yeah. And I, I think the original mistake was just holding him past the deadline. The moment you did that, I think you're, you were in touch. Well, and you, you know, you and look at that so, and everyone is so concerned about this term asset management, but the reality on asset management is it's not what you get back for the player and Calgary proved this. It's what else you can do with the money you otherwise would have spent on the player. Correct. Exactly right. And I, I mean, that, how many times last season did we talk about how you can lose a trade you win and win a trade you lose? I, here's the best example for me, the Jeff Skinner trade. Go look at what Carolina got back from the Jeff Skinner trade and ask yourself, who would you rather be, the team that won or lost the Jeff Skinner trade? Go look at the Vincent Trocek trade, which Florida lost roundly. So Carolina's been on both sides of this. Um, Florida lost that trade massively. But when you use the cap space to add Verhage, Duclair, Forsling, and Wenberg, uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> freeing up that cap space matters a ton. And this is what teams, they get terrified to replace good players. But it's such a young league. And it's getting younger every year. It's getting faster every year. And guys are aging out of their usefulness so quickly now. So quickly. You just have to be so careful. And those seven-year deals, they just absolutely kill you. Like, they absolutely kill you if the guy doesn't work out. Um, even if the guy stays productive. Even if the guy's Jakob Voracek and remains a 60-point guy, if he's not a guy you can win with on an $8 million ticket, which, by the way, is a super high bar, right? You have to be like a top 50 player. And what, what if you settle in at like the 70th best forward in the league, which is still a super useful piece, right? Like still like a 60-point guy, 
but you're not a two-way driver, you're not driving results, you're, you're fucked. And, you know, that's the fat part of the bell curve on Miller is that he remains productive and very good on the power play. But, you know, his two-way game's not at the level where he helps you win at 8 million by the time he's 31, 32. And, you know, that's not even halfway through the deal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, they, uh, they've, they've created a mess for themselves if they're not good this year. And the worst part about it is the overwhelming likelihood is that this is the very best team they'll ever ice uh, over the duration of the Miller extension. This is it. All right. I'm going to invite Chet. He's our last, uh, he's our last um, listener with their hand raised. After Chet, we're going to leave it there. And thank you all for joining us. We love doing this. We'll, we'll, we'll sign off on the other side, but I'm going to invite Chet up to the stage first. Hey, Chet. Hey, guys. Hey, how's Chet. it going? Going well. Going well. Yeah, is it, though? Anyway. Uh, no, I'm trying not. to no, trying not to get too venomous here, but uh, you know, I I think you got to be kind of arrogant to want to be a manager of an NHL team, and I think that arrogance is costing the Canucks. Like the the people who haven't been here don't understand what's going on here all the time, and I feel like there should be a cynic in that front office who can, uh, you know, just chime up once in a while, like, Oh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> the big, the big example I see this year is what we're encountering right now, which is we're on a five game road trip to start the season. Why are we on a five game road trip? Because they're renovating the media room. Maybe they shouldn't have done that. Maybe they shouldn't have, uh, Closed down the garage for uh, COVID when it was happening. Anyway, uh, that's just what I had to say. I appreciate it. I pre- Chet, I think there's merit to what you're saying, by the way. One thing that needs to be noted here, right? Like, this is a team where they haven't sold the jersey patch, right? Um, a lot of our touch points as media with this team are strained, frankly. The way that the organization itself functions is so different because they've lost so much experience on the business side of the operation. Like from a business perspective, this is a startup organization, a rookie organization. And you can smell it in moments. Um, you know, here's an example from training camp. On the third day of training camp, there was a Saturday scrimmage and the barn and whistlers just packed to the gills. And I've never seen this before, but they decide to do like a puck drop ceremony before the uh, final scrimmage of training camp. And, you know, there's a a first nations band um, that comes out and and plays. There's some beautiful drumming. And then there's like a bunch of clear, like development, uh, Black home and Whistler business contacts who come out and they drop a puck, a ceremonial puck drop before a scrimmage, and they go to leave the ice. And as they leave the ice, the carpet that they've rolled out uh, onto the ice to facilitate the ceremony sticks to it, right? And this is this is like a classic. This is a classic thing. Like I've been in these meetings and I know what environments you can control and what environments you can't. Right. And one thing you're always worried about as the PR guy, like your job's almost always to say no 
at first because you just don't want to be bitched at by players ever. That's like, that's my whole goal is to be like, I never want to be anyone's excuse when you're, when you're in that role. And, you know, in an NHL building, there's so much that you control that you're not even aware of until you played or have facilitated neutral site games, right? Just like the off ice officials who track statistics. Like there's so much infrastructure that goes into holding an NHL game that you don't have with you when you're, you know, in, uh, at the Meadow Park uh, Community Center in Whistler. So they roll up this carpet and the carpet sticks to the ice. It sticks to the ice and there's like little bits of carpet left behind stuck to the ice and they go out and they're like grinding away and chipping away at it. And like players are going over and helping Tanner Pearson's cutting up the ice to make sure it's flat. And they delay the start of the scrimmage. And these players are just like warming up for like 45 minutes uh, before the scrimmage. And it just felt like this metaphor of how an organization can get in the way of hockey matters to me. Um, and, you know, the renovation, the fact that it ran long, that they needed to start on the road again. You know, for me, that's that's part of it. I, I don't think you're wrong to be noticing that. I think you can see the seams in a lot of ways uh, in terms of where the organization's at at the moment. Farhan, you got anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We've seen the amount of people the organization has let go, right? Be it on the media side, be it on the business side. And I think a lot of that's concerning, right? Um, quality people, experienced people, well-regarded people. Uh, certainly the media environment around the team, and this is not a criticism of any one person, it has changed uh, in the last couple of years and not necessarily, um, you know, not necessarily for the better, right? Like just part of that is COVID and athletes getting a different level of um, expectation, you know, and with that comes a level of entitlement. And this is not that, hey, look, this team would be more successful if they were a little more media friendly. But as we've seen, you know, we had a call earlier just talking about the Sedins and trying to get them more involved. You wouldn't find two more accountable people, right? And and that has to start somewhere. So I, I do think that a lot of the changes organizationally, uh, yeah, there is a trickle-down effect. It's not run. We've, we've lauded the organization for how they've been able to uh, beef out the hockey side of it, right? From player development and, you know, the hires they made this offseason, from uh, Emily Castonguay to Cami Granado. And, and, you know, they, they've just turned from a hockey perspective into a little more professionally run well the same can't be said on the other side and there are times and you know this firsthand that those two things do cross over like church and state affect one another and i, I do think that's happening that's not why they're all four and one but it um it does impact the organization there's no doubt I, I think we got to leave it there. We've been going for about 70 minutes. Um, thank you for coming here to fetch with us. We appreciate it. We love you all. We love the VIPs. I miss being on the VanCast. I love getting a chance to chat with you, Farhan. Uh, we'll do it again at some point during the home opener or some, the, some point during this homestand or maybe after the Seattle game. Are you going to go down to the Seattle game next week? Uh, I don't know. About that. I'm going to Seattle tomorrow to cover the Seahawks. And uh, nice. we'll see you about next week. My Seahawks, hey, how good was that pick, though? My I'm Seahawks impressed. are going to be actually good I, pick. Was, that was, that was a good pick, and no one else was making it. And now they're no. like, now they're like very much. I, I kept telling everyone, you'll vouch for me, right, Farhan? And I kept telling everyone, the Seahawks are like that classic 9-8 and eight playoff team. Like the crummy playoff team. That's who they are. And everyone thought they were, you know, absolutely in the C.J. Stroud mix. That's not been the case. 
No, and if their defense can build on that Arizona game, uh, you know, yeah, we, we could have something here because Gino is certainly doing what nobody thought he could do. So uh, people, didn't, <laughs> people didn't come here for hockey. We started with Christian McCaffrey. We'll end with Gino Smith. How about, how about we, this? When we get on next, we'll talk about a Canucks victory or a series of victories. <laughs> yeah, maybe. How about this from Cole P, by the way? Dresser, you can't support Seattle teams. You are a Bills fan. <laughs> so true. Let's go. Let's so go. True. Let's you go. Know, one thing for me with the NFL is it's all about the player. I do not care about the brand. Like, I don't care about the city. I don't care about the brand. It is all about the player. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, Josh Allen is incredible. And we get to see hockey Josh Allen, Paige Thompson, uh, <laughs> play in Vancouver on Saturday against the winless Vancouver Canucks. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this live bandcast. All the best. All right. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon.